a world without disease, a world without cancer. I want you to imagine a world where there was no relational hurt, a world where love was true and love lasted. I want you to imagine a world where governments didn't shut down, a world where governments worked and, and everybody had enough. I want you to imagine a world without abuse, where kids were safe. Imagine a world without terror. I want you to imagine a world without death. Uh, this week on Thursday afternoon, as our staff were heading to our Christmas party, I received a text message. And I was rocked by the news that a young guy in his early 30s who used to be in a community group with me at my previous church had died from cancer. It was unreal. I didn't want to believe these things because I don't want a world where death exists. I don't want to believe that this version of the world is the only and best version of the world. I want world 2.0. What we're imagining this morning is the world that we all want. Now, this might sound like a fairy tale. It might sound like I'm an idealist. It might sound like I am plain deluded. And I want to acknowledge that there are charlatans all the time. My favorite at the moment is Donald Trump uh, with his slogan, Make America Great Again. There is something hideously deceived and prideful about that slogan, isn't there? At the same time, there is something that grabs me. Can I say us about that slogan? Who doesn't want a world that is great? Who doesn't want a better world? Well, what if I told you that there is real evidence for this great world, a real, real evidence for a better world? What if I told you that the Christian message is that if there's a real Jesus, then there's real hope for our world? What I mean when I say there's a real Jesus is that what if I told you that Jesus did die and he actually rose again and is alive today? If that's true, the Christian message is that there is real hope for our world. There is a world 2.0. Now that claim might sound absolutely extraordinary to you, and that's because it is. The account that we read, that Ben read to us in Luke chapter 24, I want you to keep it open, is extraordinary in the true sense of the word. It doesn't happen every day. Let me paint a little bit of the picture as we come into this story. These events happen after Jesus died. That might have, you might be inoculated to that idea, but these events happened after Jesus died. And three days later, um, some people are claiming they've seen an empty tomb. That's where Jesus was buried. They've seen an empty tomb. Not only that, they're gathered together because some within their own group, some of the closest friends of Jesus, are claiming that they've seen the risen Jesus. Now, you can imagine they're all together. 
they're, perhaps they're discussing this, some are incredulous, they're mocking with disbelief. We saw nails go through his hands. We saw him, taken, we saw him die and then taken off the cross, wrapped in burial clothes and put in a tomb, and the door on the tomb was shut forever. That's what we saw. Perhaps others are saying, they're thinking this through and they're going, you know what, do you remember that time Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it? It's been three days. Perhaps this is that. Well, perhaps it was less of a discussion group and more of a wake, feeling the loss of a loved one. Friends gathered, mourning, regrouping, saying, please do not mention that idea of Jesus being alive again. It's just inappropriate. And then what happens? Jesus enters the room at just that moment. And he says, G'day. He says, peace be with you. It sounds a little bit uh, understated, doesn't it? Perhaps Jesus was expecting this the whole time. For those in the room with him, and for us reading it, it's extraordinary. It's incredible. Perhaps it's unbelievable. As we dive into this story now and, and unpack it and what it means for us today, I want us to remember who this story is written for and why. Last week we looked at Luke's prologue, the opening to his gospel, where he mentions a person and a purpose that he's writing to and, and for. He says he's writing to Theophilus, who's perhaps a Roman official of some kind of the day, uh, a Gentile, not a Jew, not much religious history, and probably a new Christian. And Luke says he's writing to Theophilus for the purpose of him having certainty about the things that he has been taught. And I don't think it's the kind of certainty, uh, the kind of certainty that he's looking for is the kind of sitting back, thinking philosophically about the Christian faith, does it work, are all the facts true, you know, does it intellectually come together? I think Theophilus, as a first century Christian, is probably experiencing some of the heat of being a Christian, some persecution from friends, from family, even within his church, and he's wondering, are these extraordinary events, are they true? What do they mean? And what do they mean for my life today when this is hard? And so I want us to look at this story through his lens and ask those questions. Is this true? Was there a physical resurrection? And then what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Who cares? And then what does it mean for today? And perhaps for us, what does it mean on the 21st of January 2018? So is it true? Is this a real resurrection? Well, you've probably heard the Christians believe in a resurrection. Uh, we said it in the Apostles' Creed that Matt led us through earlier. We, we said, I believe in the resurrection. Uh, but perhaps for you, as it was for me, my early Christian years, I, I might have said that, but I didn't think about what a resurrection was, let alone what it meant. I would think about the death of Jesus, and I knew that meant he loved me. 
But I didn't think much about a resurrection. And the first half of this story is really about people, those earliest people, coming to terms with the facts of a resurrection. And I want to look at that with you. Notice their response, verse 37. It says they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. That doesn't come as a surprise to me, that they're startled and frightened, seeing this friend who was dead, now alive again. Um, I'm not sure whether you noticed here, but nobody else speaks in this passage except for Jesus. They are literally gobsmacked. They are speechless. And I think it's because they don't have words or categories for what is going on here. Listen, their their questions go something like this. Perhaps it's not really Jesus. Perhaps it's somebody else. Look at what Jesus says, verse 39. He says, look at my hands and my feet. Probably pointing to the scars of his crucifixion. He says, it is I myself. This is the real Jesus. Another question they have is, uh, perhaps... It's not a real person. Perhaps it's a ghost. I've heard of that before. I can understand that concept. Jesus says, verse 39, Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And if that's not enough, the story goes on to say that Jesus got a little bit peckish and he asks if there's any leftovers and he sits down and starts eating some fish. Now, I can imagine at that point you could have heard a pin drop in the room Perhaps they're expecting the fish to fall through him like Casper the ghost. But it doesn't. What is this? This is a real physical resurrection. We saw his scars, they say. It was Jesus. We saw him eat our dinner. This is not a ghost. And I wonder whether we think about these ancient people. Perhaps they're superstitious. Perhaps they lack modern skepticism. Well, the story shows skepticism was alive and well in the first century. They say, we doubted, we poked and prodded, but we believed because we saw it. He cleaned out the fridge. This is a real resurrection. So if there's a real Jesus, what does that mean? What's the point? What's the significance of that? I mentioned before, I understood the death of Jesus, I think, what it meant for me, God loves me. But what's the point of a physical resurrection? Well, among many things, the point of the resurrection, the point I want you to hear today, especially as we begin a new year, is that it means death is no longer the end. Death is no longer the end. Death is no longer the limit on the human life and the created world. This may be the first time you've properly or thought about this, But imagine that somebody in our world had escaped death. They'd cheated death. Imagine they'd overcome death. Imagine that for them, death wasn't this shadow looming in the future, but it was a distant memory. It just lasted three days. That was it. Now we can imagine that they didn't just overcome death for themselves. They they overcame death for good, for all of us. That death itself had been defeated. Paul, the Apostle Paul, a close colleague of the Gospel writer Luke, explains this. And he says, Jesus' resurrection doesn't just mean that he rose from the dead, but that we rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
If Christ is resurrected, then it follows that other humans too will be resurrected. And he goes on, he says, Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The resurrection of Jesus tells us the certainty of our own resurrection. This is that healed and better world that we were imagining to begin with. The world will one day turn a corner. Christ has already turned that corner. I uh, have a friend and he has a son. And the son's between six or eight years old. I can't remember. I'm a bad friend. Um, But he was telling me recently that his son was watching some old television, some black and white TV. And his son turned to his dad and said, Dad, when did the world become colourful? I love that. That's what the resurrection will be like. The transformation of the world will be like, we'll look back at this one and be like, that was so plain and ordinary. It's related, but it had no colour. It was missing something. C.S. Lewis puts it better than I can. He says, in the Christian story, God descends... It's his death to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being and time and space, or into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness and then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into death-like, the death-like region of, and sli- of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back into colour and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He... And it are both coloured now that they have come up into the light. Jesus in his death and resurrection rescues our world from death. And more than that, he brings us into a new life. I love that last line. He and it are both coloured now that they have come up into the new light. Well, this is a good story, Matt. All well and good. This is going to happen Uh, But what does it mean for the 21st of January 2018? What does it mean for the 22nd of January? What does it mean for the 23rd if we get that far? It wasn't read out to us, but the last few verses, if you have it open, in verse 51 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, he says, it says, Jesus was taken up into heaven and then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at their temple praising God. Joyful worship, I mean, they're words that just fly right past us. They're the crux of the Christian life. And I just want to examine for a moment what worshipping a resurrected Jesus means for us today. It's interesting to me that before being a Christian, before thinking about the resurrection, death probably gives, is the thing that gives our life the most meaning. We say things like, uh, death gives me perspective on life. Um, I, I hope 
This is what I want people to say about me at my funeral. What do I need to put on the bucket list? What do I want written on my epitaph about me? Death has this power over how we live. It shapes how we live. But the resurrection opens up a new possibility. It says death is not the end. Life has a new horizon for us. It shows us where the world is heading, where those who trust Jesus are heading. We live our days now in light of a resurrection. This is your new option. This is how you work out what a significant life is. The end is not death, but it's actually becoming like Jesus, becoming like the resurrected Jesus. It struck me recently that Christianity offers the option to become like God. You don't have to prepare for death anymore. You have to prepare for a resurrection, a new life, a new world. Uh, so what does this mean for you and me for today? For those who are sick and suffering, I've got a few ideas. Um, many of you might know that my wife, Naomi, uh, suffers from chronic fatigue. She's had chronic fatigue for about five years. Um, tried lots of things, of course, getting lots of help. She spent the last eight days in bed. She's a young 30-year-old, and she often says, I'm missing out on the best years of my life. But then often a few moments later, she'll also say, and that's hard, that sucks. She'll often say, but the best years of my life are still ahead of me. She's not talking about turning 40 or 50 or 60. She's talking about having a physical body for eternity. You might be missing out right now, but there's an eternity of physical joy not to be missed. For those struggling relationally, uh, the resurrection in many ways reminds us that relationships are central to God's purposes. And so it is never in vain, it is not in vain to try and work relationships out now to seek forgiveness, to ask, um, to seek forgiveness, to give forgiveness, to reconcile, to live as brothers and sisters now, just draws the future in. For those struggling with sin, perhaps you're struggling with something, perhaps you're struggling to obey God, well, one day, you can know, one day, your struggles will be over. But right now, the struggles, God is using them to make you into the person that he wants you to be. That you're becoming more like Jesus. The struggle, the fights are worth it. And for those trying to navigate the Christian life in the midst of the big issues of today's society, uh, where Christianity can seem so out of touch, we need to be reminded that actually Christianity is the most relevant thing because we are the future. God's church is the future of the world. So the promise from God is not that 2018 will be a better year. I'm sorry. In the end, that would be too small a promise anyway. But his promise is rather of a new world where heaven comes to earth, where Jesus is Lord over everything, we're restored, our world's restored, and we live with one another forever.
And today can be a part of moving toward that. So what are you going to live for and live in light of in 2018? Death or life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with joy, we thank you that there is a real future and hope for our world. A better one. One that we all want. And that's to be found, to be true in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the certainty of that in his resurrection. Lord, we ask that today you would help us to meditate on the resurrection and to work out what it means for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.